a good friend of mine, work associate. We work out together. We uh, run together. We do therapy together at the gym. And uh, he is just a gifted teacher and preacher. Chad Donahoe is our uh, pastor of collegiate ministry. So I'm going to ask him to come and preach to us this morning. All right, let's pray together this morning. So Father in heaven, thank you for the gathering of your church, and thank you that throughout the world your, your church gathers to praise you, and you are worthy. And so this morning, thanks that you've gathered us together, and I pray that at this time as we turn our hearts and our minds to you, that you would overcome any resistance, any distraction, and I pray that we would seek your word, that uh, where we need to be comforted where we need to be encouraged, where we need to be convicted, that you would do this this morning, and that uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that this would be a powerful time of hearing your word and responding. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15, this morning we'll be taking up verses 22 through 27. But before I dive in and read the passage, in order to get the full weight of our passage this morning, it's important to keep in mind what, what God has just done in the life of the Israelites, his people. Chapter 14 is, of Exodus is devoted to when God delivered his people, the Israelites, through the Red Sea. If we remember, they're in bondage, in slavery, in Egypt. God delivers them out in chapter 14 through the Red Sea. And then in chapter 15, we have this song of Moses, a song of celebration that Moses and the people of God sing together. And we got a taste of that this morning. We just sang the song of Moses, and the Lord will reign forever and ever. That's what we sang. That's the same thing. We get caught up with what they sang, the very end of their song, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So they've been delivered it's a high note, things are great, they're celebrating, so far so good, what can go wrong? Now, verses 22 through 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Okay, so our passage this morning is quite ironic. Just three days previous to this passage, they were at the Red Sea. And if we recall from the story of the Old Testament, they were there in slavery in Egypt. Now, God had brought about plagues. As, the, as God's people, the Israelites, cried out to God for mercy because of the slavery under the Egyptians, 
God finally acted on behalf of his people, and he brings about plagues upon the Egyptians. And so at that point, Pharaoh cries uncle, essentially, and he lets the people of God go. So they're at the Red Sea, as Moses had led them there. But then God changes, or excuse me, Pharaoh changes his mind at that point. And so Pharaoh sends his army back after the Israelites. So if you put yourself in the Israelite shoes, they are, they're at the Red Sea. They cannot cross it. They don't have boats. And here comes the Egyptian army after them. So they begin to grumble against Moses at this point, essentially saying, why have you led us out into the wilderness to die? Is it that we did not have enough graves in Egypt? And they continue grumbling against Moses and, and even saying they would rather just go back to Egypt at that point. But God has a different plan for his people. And of course, he parts the Red Sea. They walk through, they're delivered, and Pharaoh's army is destroyed at that point. So now we have quite a, quite a transition here. They're celebrating three days prior to this. And now we find in this passage that they have no water. And only three days later, they're grumbling against Moses. Grumbling, why have we brought out, why have we been brought out to this place? Okay, so as I'm reading this passage, this was months ago that I came across this passage as I was reading it. Um, I was contemplating how absurd it is that the Israelites at this point are grumbling. I mean, just three days ago, they were delivered through the Red Sea. They're celebrating. And now, three days later, they're grumbling as if God has forsaken them. And I was just thinking in my mind how absurd grumbling can really be. And I'm in a coffee shop as I'm reflecting on this. And right then, in walks a guy wearing my coat. And it's not just a coat that looks like mine. He's literally wearing my coat. And so at that point, I begin to grumble because I'm kind of confused and perplexed at this point. So, uh, and Rick Pratt was with me. I lean over to Rick. I'm like, that guy's wearing my coat. He's like, really? <laughs> yeah, that's my coat. And so I just begin to grumble to myself. I'm grumbling. Why am I so irresponsible? You know, where did I leave my coat that this guy picked it up? But then I thought for a second, wait, maybe it's my wife. And I start grumbling against Tiffany because sometimes she'll take our clothes or her clothes and take them to a consignment shop. I thought, she consigned my coat, and I haven't seen the money for it. But then the grumbling in my mind continues, and it, it creases because I think, wait, this dude stole my coat. Surely this guy, somehow, someway, he stole my coat. And so at that point, I do what a lot of guys might do. I, I begin to size him up because I want to see if I can go take my coat back. Um, but the reality is the coat was a little long on me. It was a little big, and the chest and the shoulders on me, and this guy filled out the coat uh, to the point where I decided against confrontation at that moment. Instead, I called my wife. I said, hey, Tiffany, do you remember that really cool coat that I really, really want back right now? Do you, do you remember what happened to that? She's like, yes, Chad, remember... We went ahead and took it to Goodwill because it was too big for you. Like, oh, ouch, too big for me. Yeah, that was my moment of grumbling as I'm ironically thinking how absurd grumbling is for the Israelites. And it takes us to, it takes us to a question of why do we grumble? What does grumble reveal? 
our grumbling actually reveals a discontented heart. And as if we think about it, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where sin has wrecked so much. And so there's so much to grumble against. There's the little inconveniences in life, but there's also major hardships that we grumble about at times in our life. But underneath the grumble, what is it? Underneath the grumble is a belief. It's even a demand that life isn't fair and that we deserve more. Life isn't fair and we deserve better. And so we grumble. And some may say, well, I just have a melancholy personality, so I'm just going to grumble. It's just what I do. But, but it really goes a bit deeper than that. Because at the moment when we grumble, it does actually reveal something about our faith our belief, our trust in God in that moment. Because as we think about life, as we think about the things we grumble about, uh, horizontally, we grumble about a lot of things. We grumble about ourselves. We grumble about others. We grumble about circumstances, horizontal. But there's always a vertical dimension to our grumbling because we live in God's world. And as we think through a little deeper what's going on with our grumbling, it probably has something to do with our relationship with God. What do we believe in that moment? Is he there? Is he powerful? Is he working all things for my good? Is he perfectly wise in all of my circumstances? And so it brings us to the heart at times of the question, why are we grumbling? And what we have here is we see Israel as they are grumbling, it reveals something about their belief or their trust in God. If we think about it, just three days before this, I'm sure their hands were raised and they were, were singing, He will reign forever and ever. But they're not singing now. They're grumbling. And they're not necessarily convinced that God is there. Or if He is, does He care about them? But let's be fair to the Israelites they were in an incredibly tough circumstance. Right, put ourselves in their sandals for a second. They traveled. Uh, they, they had to travel to the Red Sea. They saw Pharaoh. Terrifying experience going through the water. They're rescued from that. And then three days later, they have no water. So they're pretty confused. And add to that the fact that this is not just some small family. We're talking roughly 600,000 men, plus women and children. Now, not finding water for that large of a group, that's a pretty big deal. But then when they come to water, it's bitter. They can't even drink it. So they may have felt like a lot of this is just simply a cruel joke. Surely, at that point, they're concerned whether or not they will even make it. Are they going to die? Are they going to perish right out there in the wilderness? But what did they forget? What did God's people, what did the Israelites forget at that moment? Well, we could say easily, they forgot three days ago. They forgot that God delivered them through a large water tunnel that they walked through. So they forgot the song that they were singing, yes. But we can even ask the question, but why did God care enough to deliver them out of Egypt? And that takes us back further. It takes us back to Genesis 12. Rick, as he preached the last few weeks, has touched on Genesis 12. Bill, in his preaching, often touches on Genesis 12 because Genesis 12 is a really big deal. Genesis 12 is where we find the covenant that God makes with Abraham. 
essentially God calls Abraham out and he says, I will create in you a great nation. You will be my treasured possession. Out of you will come a people whom I love, who I protect. And so that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 is that he would take, that God would take his people to a promised land, that he would bless them, that he would cause them to be a great name and numerous descendants. It's a great promise that is given to Abraham at that point. And so this is something that the Israelites would have known about, but they forgot the promise in that moment. And also, even if we, if you want to turn just a few chapters um, before Exodus 15, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6, God reveals more to Moses that he revealed to the people. So again, for that question, what did they forget? They forgot the covenant promise that God made in that moment. But also, look at these words, what God tells Moses and tells him, uh, and passes on to Moses to tell the Israelites. Exodus 6, verse 5 says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So we have this promise that God gave to Moses and Moses gave to the people that God would be faithful. He would lead them to this promised land. But in that moment, they forgot. And I think verse 9 is very telling. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So Moses is telling the people about God, his promises, how he will be good to them, but they can't hear it because they're broken spirit and harsh slavery. And oftentimes, isn't this the truth in our life, that a broken spirit, whatever circumstances may hit, that causes us to have a broken spirit, or when we face harsh circumstances, it can eclipse the very truth of God. It can eclipse what God has done faithfully in the past. And what we find is the scriptures repeatedly will bring us back to what God has done in the past so that we will not forget. This story is our story, God's faithfulness. But at times we need the scriptures to point us to the deeper questions that we can ask of God in the midst of trials. And the Psalms give us that. Psalm 77 in particular. 77 and 78 are Psalms that deal with God's history, and especially his faithfulness to his people. And much of what these psalms speak of is God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. But what I find uh, encouraging, this is the psalm of Asaph in, in Psalm 77. In the midst of their trials, in the midst of their circumstances, Asaph is reflecting and he asks some very human questions in the midst of struggle. Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? 
Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? To me, that is encouraging in the sense of you have the Israelites that struggle. So often we struggle. We have very human questions that God has given us to be able to wrestle through. But look what Asaph does, where he goes from there. Verse 10, he says, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And then he goes on to talk about their deliverance out of Egypt. I think this is very important for God's people. It was important for them to look back and see God's faithfulness in the past. And it's important for us to see God's faithfulness in the past, the way that he has acted. He has proved himself faithful. And as well as we look at, at times, our present circumstances, things, were, things that are just difficult. At times, our difficulties may feel like three days without water, may feel like an eternity, but the scriptures assure us God is at work. And the scriptures also point to the fact that, that in the future, God is at work, that he does indeed have a plan. But if we're honest this morning, as we look at this passage, it can make us a bit uncomfortable because God did test his people. He did test repeatedly the Israelites, and that makes us comfortable because God at times will test us. And I don't know about you, but even the word test makes me just think, uh-oh, you know, typically not fun, typically not prepared, typically don't always like the results. We don't always like to be tested. But God does test his people. And what we see repeatedly, God tests his people. They fail. They grumble. He tested them at the Red Sea. They grumble. He tested them at Marah. They grumble. He oftentimes tests us. Oftentimes, we grumble. But we have to step back and ask a question. Why does God test us? Why does God allow us to go through hard and trying circumstances? Well, thankfully, the scriptures do not leave us with no answers. We do have answers. Exodus 16, verse 4, God goes on to tell Moses that he does test his people whether they will, to see whether they will walk in his law or not. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, God tests in order to know what's in our hearts, whether we would keep his commandments or not. So we see God tests us in order to know our hearts. Is it that God doesn't know our hearts? No, he knows. But at times his testing reveals our own hearts to us. Do we actually trust him? Will we actually follow? And in the New Testament, there's some passages that give us great hope of God's testing. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the goal of our testing is steadfastness, that we would grow deep roots, deep roots as we cling to God, deep roots as we cling to the scripture, and that those deep roots would help us to hold steadfastly to the truth of God. Also, Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. 
More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It's a great statement of what God is doing, producing character that, or producing endurance in us that leads to godly character and it leads to hope. And ultimately, the world, apart from Christ, has no enduring hope. And yet God has given us a great glimpse of the hope that we have. He is at work in our lives, and especially for many, you've experienced bitter bitter pain through various circumstances. And at times, what is the hope? C.S. Lewis uh, made, uh, made a statement about the hope that we have that I, that I find very helpful, very encouraging. He says this. He says, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. So even the worst of pain, we can't fathom this side of heaven, but from heaven's perspective, even the worst agonies are turned into a glory. There is great hope. And so God tests us. He tests us in order to know our hearts, asking, will you trust me? Will you follow me? God also tests us in order that we would grow deep roots into the scriptures, that we would cling to God. But also, God tests at times to provide opportunities for him to show himself faithful. And we see this with the Israelites. We see that they're not quite convinced of where God is leading them. They're not quite convinced of will God be good to them in the end. And so he uses this period of testing them to show them his provision, and his grace. And it's interesting, even the word grumbling in this chapter, um, grumbling doesn't show up all that often in the Old Testament, but when it does, it's confined almost exclusively to six chapters. Exodus 16, or Exodus 15, 16, and 17, and then again in Numbers 14, 16, and 17. And every time grumbling shows up in this context, they're grumbling against their leader, Moses. But we have to ask the question, who appointed Moses to be the leader? Who are they really grumbling against? They're grumbling against God leading them. And they're taking it out on Moses, but ultimately they are grumbling against God. And so for us as well, when we grumble, are we suspicious of where God is leading us? Do we trust that? There was a, uh, years ago, I had a situation that uh, really caused me to grumble a bit. This was back in 1999. I, uh, I felt the call for my family for us to go to Covenant Theological Seminary to uh, pursue pastoral ministry. So this is the summer of 1999, and the one and only class I needed to take that summer was Greek. And if you think about it, the New Testament is written in Greek, so Greek's kind of a big deal. Kind of need to do well in Greek. And so ready for class, the first day class hits, day one, in class, and it is great. I am loving my seminary experience. The professor is talking about how important and how rich the Greek language is and how it unlocks aspects of your sermon and how important it is for pastors to really know Greek. And, and I'm buying all of it. It's great. You know, I walk away, I go home for that class. Tiffany says, hey, how was Greek? And I'm like, yeah, the Lord will reign forever and ever. I love it. 
Day two, he starts lecturing. I'm lost for three hours of the lecture. I really, I really didn't, it's like foreign language. That's cheap. I mean, it really, I'm lost from start to finish to the point where I walk out of that class and I grab my book bag, I walk home, it's an evening class, I walk into, it's like, how's day two? I'm like, I just, uh, I just need to go. I grab a basketball and it's dark, I didn't care. I went up to the Covenant Seminary basketball court that's removed from campus and I'm grumbling, I'm at the end of myself, I'm dribbling the ball angrily, you know, I'm trying to shoot three pointers but I'm really just chucking it at the basket. And my grumbling turns to wrestling, and my wrestling turns to prayer. And I'm, and I'm wrestling. God, why? I thought I was following you. Have you not led me to this place to just simply embarrass me? I'm going to flunk out. I have nowhere else to turn. And that as I continue to wrestle, I have to come face to face with God. Do I trust him? Has he brought me to this place, the wilderness of covenant, to die there? Or can I trust in him? Will he actually be good? Okay, so some of you, just, just covering my bases here, some of you might be thinking, so that's why Chad's preaching out of the Old Testament, because he flunked Greek. <laughs> oh, I actually, once I learned that you have to read the textbook, I did well in Greek and Hebrew. That's not, okay, rest assured. Um, well, anyway. Um, <laughs> But that testing was an important period for me and for us when we go through hardships. Will we grumble or does God test us and call us to look to him, to wrestle with him, to depend upon him, to seek his face? And it is easy. We are prone at times when we are tempted and tested and tried, we're tempted to grumble. But God asks us instead, but are you praying and so what circumstances in our lives do we feel like maybe it feels like a wilderness? And that's an opportunity that God is calling us not to grumble, but to pray. Could be our jobs, could be our coworkers, employees, the, the, the duties of our job, the length of our work days, things of that nature. Are we quick to grumble or are we quick to pray and ask God for strength in the midst of it? Our finances and our needs. Are we quick to grumble that we never have enough? We want this, we want that, if we only had more money. Or are we quicker to apply the Lord's prayer for us? Give us this day our daily bread. That God really does call us to pray for what we need. And as well, we could look at difficult relationships. It's so easy to grumble against people, especially those sinners out there that have sinned against us. But the Lord's Prayer continues, right? Forgive us our debts, that we may forgive our debtors. That God does call us to pray over difficult circumstances and relationships and to forgive. Could be at times when we struggle with loneliness, we can grumble about a lack of friendships or it could be a lack of a significant other. But God calls us to pray and to depend and in marriages and raising kids, oh, the difficulties there at times. And it can be easy to grumble against our spouse. It can be easy to grumble against our kids. But do we pause and pray? 
Do we pause and pray with our spouse? Do we pause and pray with our spouse about our kids? We're quick to grumble, but God calls us to cry out, to call out to him. Because our, our hardships reveal that we do need to come face to face with God. We do need to deal with what is he doing in our lives and what is he working out within us and how does he use all of these difficult circumstances to form us more and more into the people that we need to be. So obviously we can pray and we can trust because God knows the whole plan. He knows the whole story. He knows the whole ending. And he is the one who acts. And we can think about the repeated pattern in the scripture. God's people fail, but God acts on their behalf. God's people fail, God acts on their behalf. And we can look at it even as God led them through the Red Sea and as God provided water. It's as if God is saying, look, I am the God who can drown your enemies, and I'm the God who can make your bitter cesspool sweet. I can do everything. I can do everything. And that is the God that he calls us to rely on him in that way. So what, really, what is this whole passage about? This whole incident at Marah is just one huge teachable moment. It is a huge teachable moment that right then, after God makes the water sweet, this is the stipulation he lays down. Right then he says, this is verse 25 and 26. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Okay, so what God is doing here is he is saying, if you will follow me, I will not treat you like I treated the Egyptians. You're my treasured possession. And what is God doing? He's preparing them for Mount Sinai. Okay, which means a few chapters later, God will take the Israelites up on Mount Sinai and there he will give them the law. But before he gives them the law, he is demonstrating through his presence, through his provision, through miracles, I'm a powerful God, I am good, your life should be found in me, it's gotta be found in me, it's gotta be centered on me. And then when he gives them the law, they will realize, we must realize how good this is. That if our lives are centered on this, we really will be okay. To the degree that our lives are not centered on this, we are not okay. And God will get that message across to his Israelites so that they will understand more of his faithfulness as he gives them the law. But it's also important to know the Israelites will disobey in the future, but God's promise still holds that God will not punish them like they're the unbelieving Egyptians, but rather God will discipline them as his sons and daughters, as a loving father would discipline so what we see throughout this passage, we see a God of grace who provides in some amazing ways. And as we stop and think just about what this passage holds out for us, God graciously provides the journey. He graciously provides as their healer, and he graciously provides hope. He graciously provides the journey. The journey that God took the Israelites on, it actually wasn't a direct it wasn't the most direct path. 
but God took them on a particular journey with very particular tests and his provision of grace along the way. And he took them and gave them exactly what they needed. And the same is true in our life, that God has us on a journey. And I don't say that to be all hip or new agey. We're on a journey, but we are. God takes each and every one of us on a journey, and he gives us exactly what we need. He does give us the hardships we need. He gives us the grace to make it through. God provides along the way on the journey that we are on. And so he tests us, not in order to make our lives difficult, but he tests us in order, just like the Israelites, to see that we are dependent upon God for everything, the necessities of life, for everything. It can't be out of our ability. So God graciously takes us on the journey that we need. He also graciously provides as the Lord our healer. He provided for the Israelites, as he made the bitter water sweet. But God heals not just water, he heals them. And if we think about it, what did God do for his people? How does God allow for a sinful people to be in the midst of a holy God? He gave them the sacrificial system that through the blood of animals, it pointed towards forgiveness. That was the way of atonement, but it was never perfect. The sacrificial system pointed to a greater need for an ultimate healing of our sin. The Israelites had a sin problem. We have a sin problem. Before holy God, what does it point to? Isaiah brings out beautifully the reality that the sacrificial system pointed to the person and the work of Christ. And especially in Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah 53, he says this, as he's pointing forward to Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes, we are healed. With his stripes, we are healed. That is our hope. It is our only hope. What you have is Jesus who, who was tested in the wilderness, but was completely faithful. He was obedient to the voice of God. He was obedient to the law. And he was obedient to the cross. Where God put upon Christ our sins. And so we have Jesus who is completely faithful. And even beyond that, God has changed through Christ. He's changed our hearts. We have new hearts. He's changed our motivation. He's given us the very power of the Holy Spirit to walk with him. Truly God graciously is our healer. And ultimately, God graciously provides hope. With verse 27, Exodus 15, 27, he says, They came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. I mean, again, just much water in the Exodus and the Red, you know, parting the Red Sea, no water, but then God brings them to a literal oasis 
a literal oasis in the desert. Now, some have mentioned in this, with the 12 springs, could that somehow um, you know, be a play on the 12 tribes? Others have suggested that according to the Hebrew mind, these numbers, 12, the 12 springs and the 70 palm trees may be rounded numbers to a Hebrew mind suggesting perfection. I don't know. What I know is God provided an oasis in a desert. It's an amazing ending to a story. And what he provides is a great perspective for us that we do not always know the ending of our lives, of our stories, of our circumstances. You know, the Israelites, they were ready to give up all hope when their backs are against the Red Sea, or even now when they had no water, but God came through. And in our circumstances, we do serve a God who comes through. And we do not always know the ending of our trials and our circumstances of what God is fully doing. But we do know the ultimate ending. This Elam, this oasis, doesn't it point us to a greater oasis? One that does await us? It's called the new heavens and the new earth. This is great. God is providing for his people. But this jumps off the page at me. It points to an even greater time, an even greater place, the new heavens, new earth, where there is nothing to grumble about. There is no more grumbling. It is a perfect peace with Christ. It is a beautiful picture that the Lord gives us. And so Elam reminds us that we are tested along the way, but when we are tested, God is at work in the test. He's been at work in the past. He's at work in the midst. He will be at the work in the future. And God is asking the question, will you trust me? Will you trust me to lead you? And with that, I want to end with this idea of what does it mean? Who is this God that leads us? Because as we think about verse 27 and who it is that leads us, it's a fitting ending, and I'll close with this. Of the God of Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are our shepherd, you are our healer. And thank you more than anything for Christ, our healer. Thank you for his faithfulness in the wilderness. Thank you for his faithfulness on the cross. And thank you for the power that is at work in our lives through Christ. Thank you that you're a God who sustains us. Though we are tested, thank you that you can take any circumstance and take bitterness and cause it to be sweet. So thanks for the hope that we have. And help us as your people not to be characterized by grumbling. Help us to be characterized by prayer. Help us to be mindful of your grace to us in the past, your grace to us in the present, and help us to look forward at the hope that we have in you. And Father... 
I pray that we would be a people because of your truth of great encouragement and hope to the world around us. And even with that, I do pray that we would be of great uh, encouragement and hope in our prayers as we pray for people within our midst who desperately need you. I think of Randy and Michelle Barnes as, as Randy is now grieving the death of his father from last Thursday. Pray that you would comfort, surround them with your love, surround them with your community, that as they grieve, they would know deeply the love and the hope that they have in you. And Father, for others in our midst, there's uh, deep loss, deep pain for so many in the last few years that have lost loved ones and have had incredibly difficult circumstances. Please continue to be with them. Please help them to know the hope that they have in you, that they would rest in you. Please help us as a church to do a great job of comforting and encouraging where needed. We also think of Clay Phillips right now with his throat cancer and as he is receiving radiation therapy and chemotherapy. As you are one that can make bitter circumstances sweet, we do pray for a healing. That you would heal and along the way that you would sustain Clay and April their children, Ellen, Seth, Isaac, and Levi, that you would be with them powerfully in this time. We pray also for Shirley Grubbs as, as her right eye, as she's been experiencing retinal detachment. Father, pray for her. We pray that you would comfort her, that with the pain, the agony of that, that you would be with her and would you give her a great measure of peace. And Father, for so many other trials that... Um, that we just experienced now, we'll experience in the future. Give us a great sense, again, of the grace that you provide in the moment and the hope, ultimately, that we have in you because you have claimed us as your own. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And please stand for the benediction.